Let's turn in our Bibles now to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We've been going through this book of 1 Corinthians for quite a while. We're moving toward the end of it, and here after the lengthy discussion over the last several months on spiritual gifts and on love there in chapter 13, chapter 15, Paul is starting to wind up what he has to say to them and now reminds them of what matters most, reminds them of of the center, really, of what Christianity is, of that which our faith is built upon, and that is the gospel. We call it, Paul calls it the gospel. The word gospel means good news, a good message, a good word. We throw the word gospel around as if it applies to all sorts of things or everything that's remotely Christian. We talk about music sounding, having a gospel sound, but Gospel is something very specific, and Paul addresses that here and lets us know how important the gospel is. It's where our life is built. It's where all of truth kind of comes together in any kind of meaningful way as we see what the gospel is. And Paul said that's all he preached is the gospel. Let's look at chapter 15, beginning with verse 1. He says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand. He said, I, I'm the one who declared this good news to you, but you chose to receive it. You responded to it, even as John chapter 1, John says, as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to those who believe on his name. Someone had to tell us the good news, but we also had to respond to it and to receive it. We have that responsibility. I know that God chose me before the foundation of the world, and it seemed like he was just pulling me against my will sometimes to draw me to discover a relationship with him. And, And that's certainly true, but it's also true that at some point I had to surrender. At some point, I had to receive that work personally in my life. I heard the gospel and knew it, understood it for a long time before I finally came to the point of receiving it. And so Paul said, this is the gospel. I preached it to you. I gave you the good news, and you received it, and you stand in it today. This is what you can depend on. There's a lot of shaky ground around. There are people who up in Reno right now, they've been having hundreds of earthquakes. And seems like the first one wasn't the worst. Some of the aftershocks are worse than the others. And those of us who have lived in California for any length of time know that feeling of the ground shaking. Oh, doesn't shake us up too much because we know it's, it stops, it's going to end. People from outside California come out here and they're scared to death of earthquakes. Of course, the Midwest got their taste of it just recently, and you know they claim they live back there in tornado country because, well, at least we don't have earthquakes. But Paul is saying the gospel is something that gives you something to stand on. This is where you can take your stand. You know, people will let us down. People that we think we can trust and depend on at times will just come up short. They'll disappoint us. 
But the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is something that I can say, if I don't understand anything else, I understand this. And here is where I take my stand. And he says, by which also you are saved. Literally in the Greek, it says, by, by it also you are being saved. Salvation is something that happens to you when you receive him, but it's also something that continues to happen. Not only did the Lord save me back in 1971, but he's been saving me ever since. He, I create problems and he solves them. He follows me around and undoes the messes that I make. And I'm being saved constantly. If he quit saving me today, I'd be done for. And Paul said, it's still that gospel by which you are in the process of being saved. If you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. He said, as long as you are hanging on to the gospel, as long as you are putting your trust in the power of the gospel, you'll be okay. If at any point you let go of that, you decide you're going to move on to something else, then it was all for nothing. It was all in vain. Now, people have great lengthy theological discussions about can you lose your salvation? Is it possible to be saved and then lose it? And I, I think it tends to be sort of a semantic thing, really, and I don't indulge in the argument too much because here's the bottom line. If you used to be saved and now you're not, did you ever really have eternal life? If it didn't last, you didn't have it. Jesus tells us to, to abide in him. And so that's all Paul is saying here is, hey, if you, if you hang in there, but we really understand, yeah, we're hanging on to him. He gives us the ability to do that. But really our security is in what he has done for us and the fact that he is hanging on to us. And so this isn't, you know, if you don't want him, you don't have to have him. If you want to say, forget it, I don't want the gospel, then there's nothing else God has for you. You're you're letting go of that which has the power to save you. But Paul here is making such a big deal about it because the gospel is everything. It's what matters. It's the most important thing that we could ever understand or adhere to. And so he says, verse 3, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. If you ever underline things in your Bible, underline first of all. The Greek word there doesn't just mean, oh, it's the first thing I said. But it means this is the primary thing. This was of most importance. This is elementary and critical. And he said, I gave this to you, and it was of foremost importance. And Paul didn't make it up. Paul didn't design Christianity. He said, I delivered to you that which I received. Paul had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ and probably looking at Galatians and, and putting some things together and several things that he says in 1 Corinthians, he was tutored by Jesus himself. Paul had such profound insights into what Jesus and his life and his death and resurrection and everything meant that Paul must have received a lesson from Jesus, probably when he was out in the desert of, of Arabia. But 
Jesus in the same way that when he found the two disciples and he opened the word to them and showed them everything about him from the Old Testament, Paul knows so much that he must have received that same kind of tutoring. And so he said, I'm just the delivery system. I'm just, I just gave to you what I received myself. I delivered to you, first of all, most important, that which I also received. And so here's the message, here's what he's talking about, the gospel, the good news. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. That's the essence of the message that Paul said he was preaching. And that remains and continues as the message that we can put our stand on, the message that we can trust completely, the message that gives meaning to everything else in existence is found in those simple phrases, Christ died for our sins, Christ the Messiah, died for our sins according to the scriptures. He did what the scriptures said he would do. He was buried. He was really dead. He rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That's the message that Paul is talking about. That's what he says he preaches. And for any of us as believers, if we move past that message, if we go, okay, I got that down. Give me something else and we forget that, we are forgetting that which gives us life on a day-to-day basis. It was really sad. I've mentioned it before, but a while back I was in another country, and, and one of the last nights we were in a hotel that actually had CNN, and so I could hear English on the hotel, and I flipped on CNN, and there was a guy interviewing a, a, a very successful pastor of the largest church in our country, and he was interviewing him, and and I don't mean to knock this guy, and I'm sure he loves the Lord and meant well, but here's how the interview went. The guy said to him, he goes, you know, I've read all your books, and I've watched your TV show quite a bit, and you don't say a lot about Jesus. And the guy looked a little nervous, and, and then the interviewer continued. He said, I'm, I'm just saying, you're a Christian pastor, you're a Christian minister, but I don't hear a lot of stuff about Christ in what you have to say. And the guy looked like a deer in the headlights, and he fumbled around and started breaking out in a sweat. And, and then he said, oh, no, no, no. He said, no, we believe that Jesus Christ came and died and rose again. I mean, but how many times do you have to say that? You know, we cover that that's been covered but what I think the world needs is to know how to have a successful life, how to have a happy marriage, and so we spend our times on those things. Understand this. Having a successful life and having a happy marriage cannot compare to understanding the gospel in all of its simplicity and all of its glory. And any time we get past that message, any time we have a whole lot to say that doesn't have anything to do with that, we're neglecting the message that really matters, the important message. And we're just talking about other things that matter very little. We can't afford to get beyond the primary message of what Christianity is, according to what Paul says. And so Paul, a brilliant guy, well-read, well-studied, yet he constantly talks about the fact that all I do is preach Christ and Him crucified. 
That's what matters to me. That's what continues to save me. That's what continues to work in my life. It's that good news of the gospel. Now, he says Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And there are a lot of scriptures that he could easily be referring to because there were prophecies that one would come and die for the sins of everyone else. Isaiah 53 is one passage that leaps to mind immediately where it talks about one who would be wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, for the transgression of of our peace he was stricken. He says, all we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The concept of someone dying for the sins of everyone else is one that had been prophesied. And it's really good news for us, by the way, because we're all under a death sentence. If someone doesn't die for us, we're sunk. It's all over. And so the scriptures certainly referred to that. Now, other people have gone, oh, wait a minute, he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. What scripture does that fulfill? And people grasp at it and try to figure out there. There's, there's that passage in Psalms that talks about him not, seeing corruption, his body not seeing corruption. There are other passages that refer to living again. There are passages that, are refer- that Paul shows are references about Jesus ascending and leading forth captive captives. And, and then people go, yeah, but how about three days? Where does it say that? And some people go, well, the story of Jonah, he was in the whale for three days. And you go, yeah, but isn't that a stretch? Well, probably not because Jesus himself said In the same way that Jonah was in the belly of the well for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the center of the earth for three days and three nights. So it's not stretching it too much to suggest maybe that's what Paul's talking about, or just the fact that Jesus himself said he was going to do it as Scripture when he speaks. But rather than get hung up over, okay, which verse is it fulfilling, don't miss the message. Jesus died and rose again. And that's something that we can know, and that's something we can believe, and that's something we can trust in. And it's really good news. See, this world was created magnificently. God looked at it and saw that it was good. And as he designed it to function correctly, as he, you know, we've just been, I don't know about we, but they've been celebrating Earth Day and Earth Week and everything you hear about Mother Earth. And, you know, it really is a a beautiful thing the way that the earth is created to function in this ecosystem where everything maintains a delicate balance and we everything has its place and one thing helps another thing and it's it's glorious but there are a lot of people who look at the world and go it's not perfect so how could there be a god there's so much suffering in the world things are so messed up how could there be a god who loves us who's all-powerful but The thing that that neglects is the fact that when God finished off this ecosystem, he took one creature in the world and he gave them what we call responsibility, the ability to respond, the ability to make choices. And that creature, which is who we call man and woman, of all the creatures has responsibility over the creation, the ability to help keep things in balance, the ability to help other members of creation. But in that capacity, 
That brilliant capacity is also the capacity to mess things up. Because if you have the ability to respond, if there is a responsible creature, there's no other creature who's responsible. You know, we, we talk about, oh, man is destroying the ozone layer, man is causing global warming and whatever. It may be true, I don't know. Like days like today, I'm kind of into the whole global warming thing. But, you know, animals don't sit and worry about the ozone layer. The cows aren't going, we've got to stop plopping because it's creating something that's... Uh, they're not responsible for it. They're just a part of the system as they're functioning. But when God created the earth and told man, okay, I'm giving this to you, and you have responsibility, when we denied that responsibility, it started in the Garden of Eden by saying no to God, by saying, I'm not going to do things God's way. I'm going to go with my own plan. We misused that opportunity for responsibility, and we've begun to damage the planet, the ecosystem, and each other in our own lives. And the fact is, we still have the ability to make a difference in a positive way in people's lives. At the same time, we have that horrible capacity to mess things up. And that's what's wrong in the world. If you don't believe it, look in the mirror. And we all contribute in a negative way to this environment, to everything that's around us. And the world is getting worse, and it's becoming more and more hopeless for people simply because of the fact that we are unable to fulfill our responsibility and to be used in a godly way as a force for fixing things instead of damaging things the way we are so prone to do. Now, into that picture steps a story of a gospel. Someone who says, I can fix this. And that is the story of Jesus Christ. The one who was completely God, therefore his life is infinitely valuable. At the same time, he's completely man, therefore he's related to us and can take responsibility for us, can take our place in dying. But the problem is, once you die, you're done. But he wasn't, because he died and rose from the dead. And that is good news indeed for us. That's what can fix everything that's wrong with each one of us, what's wrong with this world, what's wrong with history. Everything that's ever been off the mark or messed up is fixed ultimately by the gospel. If we will respond to it, if we will receive it, if we will allow him to then be the Lord of our lives. Now, we look in today and we're still needing to be saved. We are still needing the gospel to work in our lives because we're not there yet. God isn't finished with us yet. The day is going to come, though, when he writes everything that's wrong when he establishes his kingdom, we look forward to that. And it's all about the gospel. It's all about what he did for us by dying for us. Now, we call that atonement, substitutionary atonement, where he died for us. I don't understand it. And I don't spend a lot of time talking about all the different theories of atonement. Because all I know is, the Bible teaches it clearly that it's true. Miraculously, God became a man and died for my sins, 
paid the penalty for my sins and for yours too. And if I receive him, then I can have eternal life. And he can begin to right everything that's wrong in my life and in this world. And ultimately, we will see his kingdom come so that his will will be done on earth, even as it is in heaven. That is good news indeed for people who are bent toward destroying everything that God has ever created. Now, as Paul talks about that, and he says, this is the gospel, this is the good news, he begins now to focus, and really for this whole 15th chapter, he's going to be talking about resurrection. Because if somebody dies for something, and then they're dead, well, what good does that do? But the gospel is that he rose again, even as he said he would, And because he conquered death, now he says, hey, I can give you that same ability to defeat death. Jesus said there at Lazarus' funeral, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Because I live, you will live also. If he hadn't raised himself from the dead, you'd think that sounds crazy. But a guy who's already conquered death who says, hey, My resurrection means that you will have a resurrection as well. means that you don't have to fear what comes after this life. Most people spend their whole lives afraid of what comes next. Jesus goes, I've been there, no problem. Now as Paul's talking about it, notice that he says, he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and then verse 5, and he was seen by Cephas, Cephas is the Aramaic word for, for rock, and, and so it was the, probably the Aramaic name for Peter, um, which Petras, Petra means Greek, it means rock in Greek. And Paul always called, well, there was one time where he called him Peter, all the rest of the time he called him Cephas. So he was seen by Cephas, and then by the twelve. Now people will find problems with everything in the Bible, and they go, the twelve, look, I thought there was only 11. Judas had died by this time, never saw Jesus after the thing. Well, let language be language. I mean, the 11 guys who were all part of the 12, they could still be called the 12 even if they aren't. And if that doesn't do it for you, Matthias, who got elected to be a part of the 12 a little bit later, saw Jesus after he rose from the dead. By the time this was written, he was a part of the 12, so that could be it. So look, At least 11 people saw him. (laughs) Peter saw him. But he goes on. He goes, it's not only that. You could talk to Peter. You can talk to the 12. But after that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once. 500 people at one time. It's easy to say, oh, Peter was just seeing things. Yeah, but 500 people simultaneously having the same hallucination? That's a little tougher to swallow. Now, people have gone, oh, if 500 people were there and saw Jesus, the Romans and the Jews certainly would have done something about it if they were there in Jerusalem. Well, you read in the Gospels, you see that Jesus had told them repeatedly, after I rise from the dead, I'll meet you in a special place on a little mountain in uh, Galilee, up in the north where, where he grew up. And so, no doubt, people knew that he had said that. Even after he died and rose from the dead, the angels said, yeah, Jesus had to tell the disciples he'll meet him up in Galilee. So tradition says that, that it was on Mount Tabor, up in a little hill up in the Galilee region. But here a group of 500 people show up and 
see him at once. But not only that, it says the greater part, most of those people are still alive today. Oh, a few of them have fallen asleep, like some of you, but yeah, I know it's warm. But you know, he's going, hey, most of these 500 people, they're still here. Ask them if they saw Jesus. And then he goes on to say, um, after that, he was seen by James, his, Jesus' half-brother, James the last. He believed in Jesus finally. I mean, it's hard when you grow up with somebody to accept that they're really God and everything, but James, after he saw him alive again, James believed. He wrote the book of James. He became the pastor of the church there in Jerusalem. And then by all the apostles, and people go, all the apostles, he just mentioned Peter, he mentions the 12, he mentioned, you know, how, is, what, is he starting to count people again? Well, there were a lot of apostles who weren't included as a part of the ones that were closest to Jesus. And Luke, it tells us that Jesus had 70 disciples who had that kind of status. Over in, Paul calls, Paul's an apostle, Paul calls Barnabas an apostle. Over in Romans 16, he mentions a couple guys you've never heard of and says they were apostles. So there were more apostles. So he goes, besides those 500 and after James and after Peter and after the 12, there was this other group of apostles and, you know, who, who saw him as well. And then Paul says, last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due season. That's a nice way of saying what the word that Paul really used here is he said, he was seen by me and I was an abortion. And he said, for I am the least of the apostles. The name Paul that Jesus gave to Saul after he was converted, the name Paul, the name Paulus in Latin is a word that means the, le the least, the smallest one. Paul was a little guy. He had that short guy complex. You can kind of see that sometimes. And so when Jesus called him, he said, I'm going to change you. And for one thing, I'm going to call you Shorty. And so that was his nickname. And now Paul's going, yeah, I, I, I was the least of the apostles. And I'm not worthy to be even called one who is sent because I persecuted the church of God. Paul never forgot what he did before he was saved how he was responsible. I'm sure the voice is just ringing in his ears of people who were being killed for being Christians at his command and under his authority. Imagine then later, he was the one who was responsible when Stephen was stoned. And imagine later in the church running into Stephen's kids, you know, and his wife, and they know He's the guy that was in charge, and how painful that must have been. All of the devastation that he was responsible for, and all of the death. It's no wonder that he goes, I see my life as an abortion in terms of what I'm, what I'm worth. I'm, I should have been cast off. And he goes, I'm the least, man. To be, for, for me to be an apostle, for me to be representing God, oh man, I don't deserve that. I persecuted the church of God, but, verse 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. I bet you thought Popeye came up with that <laughs> first. I am what I am, and that's all that I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. 
Paul goes, I'm the least. I'm somebody who was a preemie big time. I'm someone who, who was awful until the grace of God found me. But Paul had this amazing revelation, and it's something that every one of us has to have in order to really come to understand the gospel. And it's summarized in that great little phrase, I am what I am. Most of us spend our whole whole lives pretending to be something that we aren't, hoping that people believe that we are something that we aren't being posers in every way possible, dressing ourselves up, presenting ourselves in the best light. In every way, our waking moment is spent on not letting someone discover who I really am and what I've really done. We're afraid of who we are. It's, it, it's, it's ultimately sickening so often when we really see ourselves as we are. But Paul had experienced that moment of standing naked before the Lord and realizing I am what I am. I'm finally going to look myself in the mirror. I'm finally going to be honest. I'm finally going to stop pretending I am what I am. And at that moment, what he received was God's grace. As he accepted who he was, God said, now, that's all you needed Now let my grace do a work in your life. And because he understood grace, and because he knew he couldn't earn salvation, so he said, man, I I worked harder than anyone because of God's grace. It was God working through me by his grace. I worked harder than the other apostles because I didn't deserve to be one, because I knew I was unworthy, because I knew who I really was. He goes, I went nuts. I took the gospel and I majored on it and that was what I cared about and that was what I presented and that's what I told you as he had told the Philippians everything that I had before that day. I counted it as done. Though I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, though I was blameless according to the law, I was smarter than anyone I knew, but the day when I saw I am what I am, and then the grace of God was revealed to me, I counted everything that I had ever accomplished as garbage. And I started over with the grace of God and the gospel. Just that beautiful truth that Jesus Christ died for us and rose from the dead. There's hope. There's hope after death. There's hope after this life. There's a way in which God can turn things around for us. He can take someone, Paul would say, who was an abortion like me, and breathe life into me and allow me to to become someone who is used by God to present the glorious truth of the gospel, to give people news that can change their lives. And he goes, I figured that out, and it was all God's grace. And I am what I am, but he is who he is. And that's the great news. That's the gospel. Now, why does he go into telling about all these witnesses? Because the resurrection is absolutely critical. He's going to spend the rest of the chapter talking about resurrection. So we'll be spending a few weeks talking about it. But if Jesus didn't really raise from the dead, this whole thing is just a fairy tale. If he didn't raise from the dead, there is no Christianity. There are people who go, oh, I can be a Christ follower without believing in the resurrection. No, you can't. 
Because if he didn't rise from the dead, somebody faked that, somebody made that up, if that's just a myth or a fantasy, then he's not, he's not better than anyone else. Our faith, our religion isn't better than any other religion. The thing that sets our faith aside from every other faith is that we worship a risen Savior. We have someone who conquered death. That's tough to fake. No other religious leader even tried to fake his death and resurrection. It's too hazardous to do something like that. So Paul goes, look at all these witnesses. You can talk to them. Now, people go, yeah, but wait a minute. I mean, 1 Corinthians was written way after the fact. Some atheists like to say that. Oh, it was, you know, that book was written well after. Well, 1 Corinthians was written in the between 50 and 55 or so AD, we know, because of all kinds of internal and external evidence. So it's true, it was like 20, 25 years after um, Jesus died and rose from the dead. But how hard do you think it is to start a belief like this within that small period of time, 20-some years? You know, how many of you remember when the when the Challenger blew up, when that Challenger disaster happened. How many of you were watching that? I remember watching the takeoff on TV. How many of you remember that and saw it? That was just like 23 years ago. Now, what if somebody today started a big movement and said, oh, it didn't really happen. It's not, you know, that was just a myth. You, some, they'd get a web page and some kooky you know, talk show would interview them, but nobody's going to follow them. You know, there are people for a while who thought Elvis was still alive. But those kinds of things die off really quick. You know, and somebody, there still may be somebody who swears they saw Elvis and Krista McAuliffe gassing up a Cadillac somewhere out in the Nevada desert, but most people are not following that. It's like, come on, man, I remember, I saw it happen. They're dead. Deal with it. Accept it. How many of you remember that great moment for us Dodger fans, 1988, Kurt Gibson pinch hitting in the World Series and hitting that home run while he was injured so bad he could hardly walk. And it was just one of those most exciting things I've ever witnessed in my life. That was like 20 years ago. Well, what if today somebody comes on and goes, oh, that never happened. Kirk Gibson didn't hit that home run. The ball was way foul. The ball hit the fence and bounced into the infield and no one noticed it. And he was faking that lamp and they've doctored the pictures and... Like, I was watching it live. I saw it happen. Come on, I'm not that senile yet. It really happened, 1988 World Series. Now, here we're talking about something that changed the lives of everyone who saw it. Hundreds of people who witnessed it. And not only that, they didn't just go, yeah, I saw it. People were saying, I'm going to kill you unless you say you didn't see it. It was a death sentence to believe in it. Oh, it's pretty cheap to believe, you know, that you were abducted by a UFO or that Elvis met you or whatever. You know, that's like you can believe that and you're just going to be a nut, you know, and you'll end up on TV in the South. But, you know, <laughs> to believe something, a resurrection, that they'll kill you for it? How in the world do you start a religion like that? Now, every once in a while, somebody, some religious kooks will do something crazy and be willing to die for their phony beliefs. We saw this a while back when Marshall Applewhite 
taught his followers down there in San Diego that that the Hale-Bopp comet has a spaceship behind it, and if they'll put on their black Nike tennis shoes and kill themselves, that they'll be able to join you know, that spaceship and ride behind the Hale-Bopp comet. And sadly, a house full of people ended up dying for a stupid, phony, religious concept. But how many people are following Marshall Applewhite today? Do we see a great increase in the number of people who are buying black Nike shoes so they can end up behind the comet? Of course not. A handful of people, that always happens. This is something that changed the world because these people were absolutely convinced, I saw him. And there are two things that they had to see. N.T. Wright wrote an article or a book on this. He said there are two elements, the empty tomb and the appearances of Jesus, that either one by itself can be explained. You go to the tomb, it's empty. They would think what the women thought who first got there. Somebody stole the body. But now there he is. He appears to them. Now, if Jesus appeared, they could have been hallucinating. They could have been seeing things, could have been a ghost or whatever. Tough to believe that a ghost could eat fish with you. Tough to believe that you could hug them and feel them. Ghosts, as anyone who's ever seen the movie Ghost knows, that doesn't work with a ghost. (laughs) Hard to believe that a ghost could go, put your hand in the hole in my side. Go ahead, feel it. But if they all had that beautiful hallucination, don't you think they would go back to the grave and check? Is he still there? Because see, the way that they would bury people in those days, they would wrap them up with a bunch of spices and stuff, and they'd stick their body in a tomb and, and lock the tomb up. And every once in a while, they'd come back and check on it. And, and once the body was deteriorated sufficiently, they would take the bones, put it in a little box called an ossuary, and then they'd take it and stick it on the shelf like your cremated remains of your grandma in your fireplace. And that's what they would do. Well, they knew about hallucinations, but they would go check the grave, and there were soldiers guarding it, and it's empty. Oh, maybe somebody took it. No, here he is. He's going, look, it's me. Touch me. Go ahead. It's me. It's Jesus. Hey, they knew that it was him. Now, besides the people that, that Paul mentions here, there are other people who saw him. He doesn't mention any of the women who saw him, Mary, who saw him there in the garden. Now, you know, Paul was trying to make a strong legal case here for the resurrection. And in those days, sorry to say, ladies, a woman's testimony really didn't mean much. They weren't even allowed to testify in court because their word meant nothing. So we're much more enlightened nowadays. But but in the Gospels... Tells about all these ladies who see Jesus. So what's the point of that? Hey, if you're going to make up a story like this, you wouldn't say, yeah, a bunch of women saw him. <laughs> they would never mention it there, but see, they're just telling what happened. It's, it makes it more obviously true because it wasn't presented as a case to defend it. Much later here, Paul is just going, here, look, look at the case. The resurrection is real. I'm absolutely certain of it. I am as certain that Jesus Christ rose from the dead as I am that I exist now. I, maybe I'm the figment of someone's imagination or something, or we're a character in the Truman Show or whatever, but I'm pretty convinced I'm really here. I've been with me all along. 
And though parts of me are failing and I don't remember myself the way I used to, I still look in the mirror, I am what I am, and boy. And that's how sure I am that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. These people were so sure of it that they wouldn't deny it at the penalty of death. They wouldn't deny it when their life was on the line. And now, a couple of thousand years later, there are still people all over the world who are willing to die rather than to say, okay, Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Christians in countries under heavy persecution who are being slaughtered and killed and raped and treated horribly just because they're Christians. What has the power to do that in somebody's life? The gospel. The good news that is so certain. I don't accept the resurrection by faith. I accept it on the basis of the evidence. I accept Jesus Christ by faith. The fact that his death was for me, the fact that he said, hey, I rose from the dead and you can too, I accept that by faith. But you have to be an absolute idiot to deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I'm not an idiot, not that much of an idiot. And Paul is here laying this out and going, this is the deal. This is what it's all about. This is reality. You got something else that's going to fix it for you? Great. You want to make up your own religion? Go ahead and try. But this is the only thing that works. And there are people creating new spins on religion all the time. There are people who are making, I mean, Scientology is a completely made-up religion by a science fiction writer. There are other little spins on Christianity or there are really distorted versions of it, and one of the first things they get away from is the gospel because that's what has the power to change people. That's what has the power to give us life after death, to give us life after life. That's what has the power to fix what we've messed up That's what is worth living for and dying for if necessary. And that's why Paul goes, that's my deal. It's just, this is it in a nutshell. This is what matters. I will stand on it until my dying day, and I'll see the Lord someday because of it. And this is what matters to me. This is the heart of all reality. We call it good news because it is. It's great news. And you can take it to the bank. You can completely trust it. There's no other explanation for what's happened other than the fact that it's real. It's true. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for sharing the gospel to us in a way that we understood. Oh, man, that day when we realized who we are, that day when we all had our I am what I am experience and the fact that you stepped up to the plate and said, I know who you are and I'll die for you. I'll give my life for you. And then I'll come back and let you know it's okay. What a glorious day that was for each of us who know you. Lord, we're sorry about getting past it We're sorry about the times when we just forget how important it is and we spend our time focusing on other things that won't last. And there are times when you give us an opportunity to share the gospel with someone and we just can't quite find a way to bring it up because 
the Lakers being up 3-0 just seems so much more important. God, please help us to live in the gospel, to live and breathe it, to carry your good news wherever we go, and to live lives motivated by the gospel. As Paul so gloriously showed when he, when he experienced your grace, he worked harder than anyone by your grace to live the life that you had called them to live because it's consumable. It's not going to last. So, Lord, we thank you for the gospel. We pray that you will help us to really comprehend it in a way that does save us procedurally, progressively, as you lead us and guide us and protect us through this maze of life. Help us to be guided by your gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand. If there's anyone here today who has never received the gospel, oh, you know, you've heard some of this stuff, but it never really hit you quite like maybe God is applying it to your heart right now. Maybe you're ready for your I am who I am experience. Maybe you're ready to be confronted by what Jesus Christ did for you. It's all good. He just wants to embrace you and save you and give you a real life. But it only is going to come when you receive the gospel, when you receive Jesus Christ. If it's time for you to do that, you're tired of messing things up, you're tired of spending most of your energy tipping the balance of nature in your life and everyone else's, hey, There'll be people down here in the front who would love to pray for you. And they'll pray for anyone who needs prayer, but especially they'd love to pray with somebody who wants to surrender to the gospel, who wants their sins to be forgiven and to, to start over. Don't leave today lost. He found you. That's why you're feeling the way that you are right now. Just come down and seal the deal. Receive the message, the good news. It's great news for you. You don't have to keep living the way you are. So if that's you, make sure that before you leave, you come down and let somebody pray with you. And for the rest of us, the gospel isn't just something we do when we become a Christian, like signing up and then we put the membership card in our pocket and we're okay. It's the way we live. It's what we stand on. And let's do that this week. Let's see what the gospel has to do with everything that God brings into our lives. Let's see if this week God gives us some opportunities to share the good news with somebody who really needs it. We have what can fix what's wrong in this world. Let's use it. Spread that good word of the gospel. God bless.